You are listening to the Primitive Intelligence Podcast, Episode 412, The Highway of Deceit, The Alternative Fuels Conspiracy. This story, well, this conspiracy was brought to my attention, well, brought back to my attention uh, by my buddy Jason Wah for Backpacking with Jason. He reached out to me last week in a text, and he sent two messages. One was the, the, the thinking emoji. And the second one was a picture of Joe Rogan with the caption, water-powered car, or something to that effect. And I thought, oh, this is this is great, because there's not just um, the water-powered car, but there's all kinds of conspiracies that I can remember, maybe a little bit of Mandela effect here, but I can remember over my lifetime. So we're going we're gonna to look into the alternative fuel conspiracy in this episode. So without any further ado, episode 412 of the Primitive Intelligence Podcast starts now. So what exactly are alt fuels, alternative fuels? It's kind of a broad category. Uh, We'll look at that real quick first, so we know what we're talking about. So conventional fuel would be anything that you burn in an internal combustion engine, such as gasoline, or diesel, those would be conventional fuels. There are a a slew of other alternative fuels, such as, uh, well, a lot of uh, city buses run on compressed natural gas. You have um, some ethanol vehicles that run on a a gasoline ethanol mixture. Um, You've got, of course, biodiesel. You've got hydrogen fuel cell. You've got electric vehicles, even though there's no fuel They do consider electric vehicles alternative fuel because the power going to the engines is electricity. They consider that the fuel. And then you got things like the air-powered car, the water-powered car, and any number of other things that people have used. Oh, there's a a wood-burning gasifier engine. Um, Steam engines would be an alternative fuel. You could technically use a steam engine for a car, but um, you wouldn't go very fast. So I don't know if you can hear that in the background. I don't know if that's coming through in the microphone. Uh, it was really warm today. It's December 6th right now. It was in the 50s. The temperature is supposed to drop, and right now it is it sounds like a demon howling outside the house. The wind is crazy. So hopefully I don't lose power while I'm in the middle of recording this. So what is the conspiracy with alt fuels? Basically, it, it's this, that there are powers, the powers that be are trying to stop alternative fuels from becoming mainstream for reasons of money. Namely, that big oil is trying to stop alternative fuels because they are filthy rich and making more money every second off of oil and gasoline and diesel because that's what cars use. So basically that, that is the fuel. That's, that's the conspiracy. The big oil is trying to crush all these alternative fuels, all these other options so that we are dependent on oil. And they're, they're, <laughs> There's, uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody's really going to argue with the fact that um, big oil would rather not see their business disappear. I think to, to believe that they in some way have not influenced the demise or at least the, the near shutdown of some of these alternative fuels would be crazy. So let's look at some of the alternative fuels that actually uh, work in our available. Of course, there's electric cars. We're going to talk about electric cars uh, in depth later in the episode. But then you also have things like um, the air-powered car. So the air-powered car, and I can't believe this hasn't, this company hasn't been sued, uh, they named their car the AirPod. And this is a car that runs on compressed air. So there's no actual combustion. You, you charge the air tank with compressed air. I don't know what, what kind of pressure it needs. But they say that it'll get about 100 miles per charge of that tank at, uh, like, city speeds, between 20 and 30 miles per hour. And then above that, if you're going faster than that, I think the max speed of the car is, like, 50 miles per hour. But if the thing's tiny, it's smaller than a smart car. It's, it's basically the size of a shoe. They're, I think they're made in Luxembourg. And if you want to buy one, it's $10,000 for the vehicle. But you have to pay for and arrange for shipping uh, from Luxembourg to where you live. I don't even know if they're legal in the United States, to be honest. I didn't look that far into them. They're very small. 
very, very small vehicles. But if you if you have an air compressor and you want to charge up your car and you really only use it around town and you don't do more than, say, 100 miles, I mean, if, if you're just commuting to work and you live only a few miles away, you can get, you know, probably a week out of that. And if you can recharge at home with an air compressor, then that's even better. So that, that's one that works. And then there's also uh, biodiesel. So biodiesel is a, a pretty reliable alternative fuel. So it is made, it's, a, it's an alternative to diesel, obviously, but it's plant-based. And probably more popularly, people will recognize it as uh, the, the fuel that people get from like McDonald's fryers, the, the used oil, and then they use that as a fuel. You can do that. You can use a used vegetable oil and turn it into biodiesel. There are some gas stations in the country that sell a biodiesel blend. So I'm, I'm guessing it's like a, a mix between diesel and biodiesel. And uh, it, it gets mixed results. It, it can actually burn cleaner because it's got a higher oxygen content. So it burns more cleanly. And the, I think the biggest issue with it other than you've got to get the the, the vegetable oil to, to make it, uh, is it can have quality issues because there's not a standardized uh, industry that's, that's creating biodiesel. So there can be unconverted vegetable oil still in there. There can be the chemicals that they use to convert the vegetable oil still in there. Uh, so that can cause some problems. But it's a it's almost like a like the the best DIY alt fuel if you've got a diesel vehicle because I from what I understand you only need a few component changes in your engine and you can use diesel and biodiesel interchangeably. So you can be running on biodiesel and if you run out of biodiesel and you need regular diesel, you can switch over to another tank and it'll still work. I'm not sure what the process is in doing that. But I, I think it works pretty pretty seamlessly if you got everything set up right. So those are two that actually work. Well, three if you, if you include electric vehicles. And then you get into some of these that just, well, they're questionable. I remember a uh, conspiracy from, oh, man, I don't even know. This is long, 15 years ago or so. And it was about this guy, maybe 20 years ago, this guy who made uh, these pills that you put in your gas tank that increase your fuel mileage up to like, 100 or 200 miles per gallon. And either he disappeared or the the technology disappeared. Somebody bought it and it vanished. It was, you know, I remember people talking about this a lot. I couldn't find any information on this guy at all. Um, but what I did find as I was researching this is that there, well, there were fuel pills available for sale. I don't know if they're still, that they still are. If there's any, anybody who's still making them. I couldn't find any information on the guy who invented them, but there were at least two different ones that I saw. The first one was a company, uh, it was, it was on a blog called strange new products, I think. And the article I read was from like 2006. And they were talking about these, these gas pills that you put in your gas tank. And then I think a Texas attorney general wanted to learn more about this. And he, he, they, they did research on these pills, these tablets, and they found that they were nothing more than basically mothballs. And it might boost your fuel efficiency for a minute, but it's basically going to burn out your engine. So they confronted the company that made these, and they took them off the market immediately. And like, oh, we need to do more testing on our side. And we'll prove we'll prove that our product works, and then they just vanished. the The websites for both of those, the the blog and this company, just gone. And this story was actually in the Washington Post. I found it from two thousand six. And as normal in the show notes, or if you're watching the video in the video description, there will be the links to all these articles. And that I couldn't really find much more about some of these other conspiracies. I couldn't even really think about some of these other conspiracies. And most of them revolved around people who had tinkered with their car in some way and come up with a, a new way of doing whatever or taking parts out or adding parts to their engine and increasing their uh, fuel efficiency. 
so I decided, let me watch this um, Joe Rogan podcast that, that Jason sent me. And it's just a, like a 20-minute excerpt from one of, one of his podcasts. And they're talking about the water-powered car. So let's talk about this because there's actually there's two stories here. One is the, the water-powered car and one is, oh, it's probably, I would say it's probably one of the forebearers, forefathers, grandfathers, the, the first instances of a fuel injection system. And there's some weird things that happen with these two. So let's we'll start with the water-powered car. And uh, basically this guy, Stanley Meyer, he invented a fuel cell. Now, a fuel cell is a, uh, a device that helps convert through a chemical process to com you know, components into energy. Na usually it's water or hydrogen into water. That's usually what you, you've probably heard the term hydrogen fuel cell. So this is that, that conversion of hydrogen into water creates electricity. But he created this fuel cell that, that turned split water from water into oxygen and hydrogen. It then burned hydrogen as a fuel, like a normal fuel cell, a hydrogen fuel cell. But it somehow it recombined the oxygen with the exhaust from the, the burned hydrogen, and it turned it back into water. And now I didn't, I only saw this in a couple spots where they said it was like a perpetual motion concept where you could just put in a gallon of water and you'd always have a gallon of water. But the inventor, uh, Stanley Meyer, claimed o over 100 miles per gallon of water. He, I don't think he ever said it, it just it always regenerated water. There may have been a, a small amount that was regenerated, but I don't, I don't think it was meant to be a perpetual fuel. There was an issue, though. He had investors, and some of them were starting to get a little antsy because they wanted to know how this worked. They wanted to at least see the components of this device, and he refused to show them. So they took him to court, and he still refused to show them. So the court system had no choice but to basically say this guy was a fraud. You're not going to show us how it works. You're not going to show anybody how it works. You're a fraud. And so there were some issues with that. But he did have a, a couple of guys, and I, I forget, they were from Sweden, maybe? I don't remember. Um, there were two foreign guys that were funding uh, his research into this fuel cell system. And he was having dinner with one of these guys and his brother, I believe. And at the end of the dinner, it was like around dessert. He ordered, they say here, cranberry juice. So we'll just say cranberry juice. He ordered cranberry juice. He took a sip of it. He got up very abruptly, kind of oddly, and walked away, walked out into the parking lot and collapsed and died. Well, as he went out into the parking lot, his brother followed him out there. And as he was you know, on the, on the ground, he collapsed. He was on the ground. He was dying. He said to his brother, and people heard him say this, they poisoned me. So there's the conspiracy is that he really did find this way to make fuel or make a car run off of water. And somebody poisoned him to get him to stop. We don't know who. Uh, the, the guy who was there, who was his investor, um, they interviewed him. And he, he considered the guy a friend. So he was a little shocked. He was unsure why he would think that he poisoned him. But he didn't say that this particular person poisoned him. Just they poisoned me. There was an investigation done into this guy's death. And the coroner report states that he had a brain aneurysm. So could the brain aneurysm have made him just say, you know, they poisoned me because, you know, it affects your brain? Or was he really poisoned? We'll never really know. But the story ends with the police saying that it was just a brain aneurysm and the people who believe that he really created this fuel cell, they they believe that he was poisoned. So that's one story of an inventor of an alt fuel who died under seemingly suspicious circumstances. The second of which was 
Tom Ogle. Now, Tom Ogle, he was an inventor, and he apparently made, he took a standard engine, and this is back in the 1970s, I think 1977, took a standard engine, and back then there was no fuel injection, so it was just a carburetor. He removed the carburetor, and he, uh, it always seems to be a black box these guys use. So he had this black box on his engine, and he called it a filter. And basically the way he explained how it worked was that the fuel passes through a series of filters before being mixed with oxygen, vaporized, and blasted directly into the engine. And another one, 100 miles to a gallon of gas, he says. He apparently drove a a reporter uh, from... El Paso to Denning, Texas. I'm not sure how far it is. Pretty far, I'm assuming. They looked at the car. They realized there was no additional fuel tanks installed. There was just this black box. He never stopped for fuel. It it seems like it worked. And a lot of people became interested in this. Back in the late 70s, this was apparently all over the place. People wanted to buy the, the technology, and he kept turning them down because he was afraid it was going to get buried. And so people kept offering and offering and offering. And eventually he, he sold the rights, the marketing rights and the engineering rights uh, to this company. I think it was called advanced fuel systems. I want to say, and they agreed, you know, he got royalties. He made like $5,000 a month uh, to keep, in working on the project and you know bring it to fruition and making it marketable and they agreed to actually produce it and and get it out into the market and then there was kind of a, a screw job this this company had already agreed to sell the, basically their company they sold themselves to a larger company that just shuttered the program. Fired this guy, basically told him, you've got no rights to it anymore. Uh, we're not honoring your existing deal. You're no longer making any money from us. You're not entitled to any royalties. Get out. And the technology just vanished. And this guy basically drank himself to death. So the, his death was, they you know could be considered suspicious as well. But I would imagine if you went through all that and you had this like the invention of the century and then it just got ripped out from underneath you and you got lied to and screwed over maybe this would you know you would follow the same path but he started drinking i guess he was at his ex-wife's house i think or his sister's house i forget i just read the article i can't remember if it was his ex-wife or his sister he was at her house he collapsed uh they she called the paramedics. They they came. They tried to revive him. I think they revived him a few times. But by the time they got up to the hospital, he was dead. And he had been drinking, and they found uh, tranquilizers in the system. And they it was either an overdose or an, a, a suicide attempt, or a successful suicide attempt, is how it was. Uh, the case was closed. But a lot of people think that it may maybe mm, – yeah, he might have been drinking, but the tranquilizers may have been given to him as a means of shutting him up. Like maybe he was about to blow the whistle on something. So these two guys, Stanley Meyer and Tom Mogul, two inventions that reportedly got 100 miles per gallon of either gas or water, and they both died under uh, seemingly strange circumstances. So you're starting to see this pattern of... Alternative fuels, better ways of creating energy for vehicles and propelling vehicles, and then they just kind of get shut down. Now, again, we've got the the biodiesel, which is still burning internal combustion engine. Uh, we've got this air-powered car, which is really only meant for short distances, and we got electric cars. Everything else, though, seems like it was either uh, bullshit or shut down. One of the things that I saw in the uh, Joe Rogan podcast was that they talked about this movie called who killed the electric car. I thought, well, that's, that's sounds pretty interesting. I'm going to look into that. And I was able to find it on, it's on YouTube. 
and on Amazon Prime according to their website. So I have Amazon Prime. I watched the movie. I streamed the movie the other night, and I watched it. And it's a, it's a documentary about, for the most part, about this vehicle that GM made from 96 to, I think, 2005, uh, 2004, somewhere around there. And it was called the EV1. And it was a vehicle that they marketed under their Saturn brand, and they marketed only in California. It was never available for purchase. It was only available for lease. And it came about because California was having massive air quality issues in the starting in the late 70s into the 80s and on into the 90s. And they were looking at ways to clear this up. GM was looking into solar-powered vehicles. And they're back in the, the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, there were these races they would hold, um, not just GM, but it was, um, I, I, don't, I forget who exactly organized these races, but it was for solar-powered or electric-powered vehicles. And they would race them across the desert. And the one year GM, they created this car, I think it was called the Solar Racer or the Sun Racer, something like that. And it was a solar powered car. It was very aerodynamic. It had really skinny wheels and it won this desert race. And it may have been, I don't know if it was the first solar powered vehicle to, to make it through this course, but it was a pretty big deal. And I remember hearing about this back then. So they based this, the Saturn EV1 or GM EV1, however they, they marketed it off the technology that was used in the solar powered car. Now the EV1 wasn't solar powered as a plug-in uh, electric vehicle, but it, it didn't look like a crazy electric car. It didn't look really out of place. It looked like a Saturn with a little more aerodynamic uh, features to it. The goal for GM was to satisfy California's at that time, new zero emissions mandate that they were pushing. So they wanted to have any, if you wanted to sell cars in California, your fleet of vehicles had to be, I think they started at like 1% of your vehicles had to be zero emission. And then in a couple of years, 2% and then 3%, 4%, 5% and, and on up. And a lot of the automakers, they, they didn't, they didn't seem like they wanted to do electric vehicles. And there's a lot of reasons probably why there's a lot of money that needs to be put into creating electric vehicle technology. There's a lot of money lost to, uh, the, the oil industry, which, uh, was for a very long time, hand in hand with the auto industry. So this EV one GM decided they wanted to have, uh, some dedicated people to this electric vehicle program. So they had one guy who was basically, his job was to make people want to buy it. And then they had a team that was really kind of like the, the core team for the electric vehicle project where they they didn't so much design it, but they they worked on getting people into it. They, they were the ones who got the leases going. They, they talked to the people. They found... You know, these people who seemed interested, they got them into the vehicles. So they worked on getting celebrities in these cars. And they had Tom Hanks. They had Mel Gibson. They had uh, Martin Sheen, I believe. Ed Bagley Jr. Um, Tom Hanks. And it wasn't just them. But some of the celebrities they talked to, that they interviewed for the documentary, commented that they'd never been sought after for something as strongly as they were for this electric vehicle. And then had it be such a hassle to actually get the electric vehicle. So it was like they wanted people in these cars, but they didn't want them in the cars. So they, there was this really strict policy. Like they, like all these questions, they, they did these background checks on these people. It was really crazy. So it was, they, it wasn't really friendly like people didn't feel welcome into these, these cars, but they got these cars and they loved them and just regular citizens who got these cars loved them. And I think they got out something like 700 of them and they were all on lease. 
And the initial, I guess the first generation of these EV1s were lead-acid batteries. So what you would see in your like your standard car to start your car, that kind of battery, they're using that technology. And they didn't have a great range. I think they had something like a 100-mile range. But if you're you're targeting people who are just commuting back and forth to work, I think in the in the documentary they showed that at the time uh, the documentary was done in 2006, which is important to note. 2006, and at that time the average drive in the United States daily drive was about 26 miles, so it was well within the range of this vehicle. So people got these cars and they loved them. And I, I remembered one clip they showed where they're talking to Tom Hanks. He was on uh, a talk show. It was, I think it was Jay Leno. And he's kind of flippantly, because everybody's like, oh, this electric vehicle, like, wh- how's it work? And he's like, well, let me tell you. He goes, you get in and you put the key in the ignition and you turn it and it starts. And it's, it's on. And then there's a thing on the floor called a pedal and you push it. Right? And it was just kind of funny because everybody thought that there, there were going to be this crazy different thing. And they're, they're not. They're just a car. They just have a different kind of motor in them. So this goes on for a couple of years. And people love the cars. They're getting more people in. They've got a waiting list of like 4,000 people. And the automakers aren't happy. I think there was three in California that were actively uh, pushing electric vehicles. Three that they focused on in documentary anyway. It was um, GM, it was, I think it was Toyota, and it was Honda. Those are the three that they, they talked about. The auto industry, at least the American auto industry, really didn't want to do this, it seems like. And they, they pushed back and they said, well, the you know your mandate is too strict. I think 1% or 2% or 3% isn't that strict. But they're like, this is too strict and there's just no call for these cars and oh, we don't want to do this and we can't do it. It's too expensive and there's not, you know, what's in it for us? And eventually GM, some of its dealerships and some private people sued the state of California. And they had, California had this this board called the California Air Resources Board or CARB, it was called. And they're the ones who came up with this mandate. They had this big hearing. They invite people from the auto industry. They invite people who are for and against the electric vehicles. And basically this California Air Resources Board basically said, um, we don't care about the electric vehicles, is, is basically how it, it, it turned out. They gave the auto industry representatives all kinds of time to make their point against electric vehicles. And anybody who, who I think they only allowed four or five people who were proponents for the electric vehicles, every time they got up to say anything, they would start to speak. They should have had like 10 minutes each. They'd start to talk and the, the chairman would be like, yeah, you need to hurry this up. We don't have a lot of time. Can you, can you make this a little shorter? Can you just get to the point and just shut them down? So at the end of it all, um, California folded and they dropped the mandate. And as soon as they dropped the mandate, they stopped the GM Honda and Toyota all stopped leasing electric vehicles. They let the, the leases on these vehicles go to the, their end, and then they basically repossessed them. They, they weren't like, oh, bring it back to us. They just went to these people's houses and took the cars. And it was really weird the way they handled it. Like, they just went and got these cars. The people who, you know, they were offering to buy the cars outright. We want to keep the cars. They're like, nope, you can't have them. But we're going to recycle them. We're going to take the components from them. We're going to work on something different. And it was all a lie. They took these cars and they, they either GM crushed them, Honda shredded them. I don't know what Toyota did with them. They probably crushed theirs too. But GM, it was really crazy because these people, they really wanted to keep these cars. So there was a big GM lot, uh, I guess near Los Angeles. I'm not exactly sure it was. But the, somebody drove by and saw all these EV1s sitting in the lot. Hundreds of them just sitting there. So they got a bunch of people together. They created this little community of um, EV enthusiasts who wanted to get their cars back. And they went to GM. And they're like, hey, look, if they're just going to sit there, let us buy them. We'll, we'll buy them back. And GM's like, no. 
And they're like, well, you know, why? And GM's like, well, because we, uh, we, we can't sell them anymore. Or whatever. They just came up with it. The, they just basically either ignored them or just came up with some, some bullshit excuse. And they – somebody found out that they were taking these cars and shredding them even though on TV – the GM spokesperson was like, oh, no, we're uh, we're recycling them and we're studying them. And no, no, you're not. You're taking them out to the desert and you're crushing them. So I think they had something like 80 people all got together and raised like $1.5 million to buy the, the last 78 EV1s that they had in this lot. They got the money together. It was legitimate. They had the money. They went to GM and they said, we want to buy these last remaining EV1s for $1.5 million. We want to give you this money. You've already made the money on the leases, right? So they, they leased the vehicles. They got the full lease on the vehicles. Here's another $1.5 million. We want to buy them. Now, you would think uh, the auto industry would be like, oh, you want to buy those cars? Yeah, we'll sell you those cars. They said, no, we don't want to sell them. We will not sell them. They then went to the GM, got a bunch of um, car carriers, took them to the lot, and it was it was a madhouse. They they actually videoed this, showing them putting these cars in. They're just slamming these things on. on they can't get them started. They're just like six guys is pushing them up on these carriers. They they left the lot. Some of the the EV enthusiasts tried to stop them. They got arrested. <laughs> they left. Um, with these carriers, one of the carriers got followed and they, they followed it out to the desert. And I think that's where they, um, I think he drove around circles for all. Like they didn't want them to know where they're taking them. And then they just crushed them. And there's just piles of them in the desert. Now, the funny thing is, is GM, it's not the first time GM's done some, something like that. GM actually bought out the San Francisco trolley system, which was one of the, I think the largest electric trolley system in the world. They they bought the trolley system out, and it just they it just disappeared, and they replaced it all with buses. A lot of people think that was another kind of a dig towards alternative fuel or alternative transportation methods. So these all these trolleys they were just ripped out, and they're also sitting in the desert somewhere, just rows of them sitting there, and they've all been replaced with buses. And you know why? The system was there; it was intact. Why get rid of it so you can help out the oil industry? And that's what this documentary tries to get to. They're looking at you know who's to blame. Was it the oil industry, the the auto industry, the government? Was it the the technology? Was it the was there not enough people interested in it? As they're trying to get these cars reinstated, the group that had now lost their job with GM, who were in charge of this EV program, said, "Look, we've got." We had 4,000 people waiting for these vehicles. And GM turns and goes, well, yeah, we looked at that list and we called each of these people. And out of those 4,000 people who said they were interested, only 50 of them were actually interested. After we told them, you know, all the limitations of the car, nobody wanted it. And the one woman that they talked to, she's like, well, that's like the worst marketing idea ever. You never try to sell something by giving people just the negatives. You know, you, you talk about the, the positives. They showed some of the advertising GM ran for these cars. It was horrible. You could tell they just didn't care. They didn't want to sell these things. So the documentary kind of lays the blame at the feet of, of the government, of the auto industry, and of the oil industry. It's like basically the three. And a little bit the technology, but the technology was getting better towards the end of the life of these vehicles. So... <laughs> The guy who was the, the chairman of that California Air Resources Board was also on the board of um, the, hyd uh, the hydrogen fuel cell committee, like this, this committee, because this is what the auto industry wants to push, hydrogen fuel cells. This is the way of the future. This is what we want to do. And from what I know, I, I remember when they started pushing hydrogen fuel cells, and it's when you listen to the auto industry talk about it, it's the greatest thing in the world. There's a lot of problems with it, though. Hydrogen isn't just, I mean, it's, it's highly flammable. It is, uh, so storage is a big issue. You need a, way more hydrogen than you think to run a vehicle. 
So the storage issue is huge in a car, like how to, how to store it safely and store enough of it. There's no infrastructure for hydrogen uh, refueling. And from what I hear, the technology really isn't even close to being ready. There's some cars that are, are using hydrogen, but I think they're more like hydrogen hybrid cars. But we're, we're, we're talking still 15, 20 years from there being workable hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but there's still no infrastructure for it. If you've got any doubt as to who is behind the hydrogen fuel cell push, um, when you look at companies like Shell, they are one of the leading hydrogen refueling stations in Germany, and they're, they're trying to expand into California. So the oil companies are behind hydrogen. They want to they push hydrogen because they want to control hydrogen, just like they control oil. This is where I kind of get off of the, the path that I followed with all this research. And I started drawing my own conclusions. Because remember, this documentary was recorded in 2006. If everything was still the same today as it was in 2006, I would say, yep, the documentary got it right. It was a mix of the government, of the auto industry, the oil industry, maybe a little bit of technology. And that's what killed the electric car. But the electric car isn't dead. And the electric car is making a resurgence. Now, before we get into the, the resurgence of the electric car, and I say resurgence because this isn't new technology. The first electric car was invented in 1832. 1832 by Robert Anderson. Now, it wasn't until the 1870s before the technology was practical enough to actually start making them and you know, selling electric vehicles, but they were, they were out there. They, electric cars were on the road at the same time, the first internal combustion engines. They actually were the first engine, the first motor used in a, in a horseless carriage was electric. Internal combustion engines, they didn't really uh, start until 1886. Carl Benz, the first one, electric uh, or uh, the internal combustion engine. So 50 years after the electric vehicles were on the road already. Electric vehicles were slower back then. And they were, I mean, the, just the cars alone were just kind of crazy looking. They were just basically horse-drawn carriages with motors on them. was basically what they were. And then some revolutionizing, you had to hand crank the internal combustion engines. It wasn't until like electric starters and some other things um, made their way into internal combustion engines that they people started going towards them. They had a greater range. It, yeah, they were loud, they were dirty, but they were they were faster and they went further. And that was what people were going for. And electric vehicles just fell by the wayside. Since then, there's been teases of electric vehicles making a comeback, and it just never really happens, like in 96. It started to happen, didn't really happen. Then we get to 2008. And this is where everything changes for the electric vehicle. 2008 is when we had here in the United States the what, what they called the Great Recession, right? It, it wasn't a depression. It was a recession. There was uh, all kinds of, of banking issues that happened. People were losing money left and right. Businesses were closing. People were losing their homes and their cars. A key thing happened. It's something that, that shaped a lot of the way things have happened in the past two years here. I think have their footing in 2008. The government stepped in and bailed out the banks. Now, the bank bailout was $700 million, and it was allotted to the banks so that they could take that money and put it towards loans, mortgages, car payments, things like that, that were being defaulted on by their customers so that they didn't lose their homes and their vehicles and basically their lives. That's what was supposed to happen. What happened in actuality is that the government put $700 million on the table, said, okay, do this almost like, um, what were they calling it back then? Like a jubilee, like a, a forgiveness of, of things. So take the money, help out the people, and the money disappeared and nobody got helped. Just the banks got helped. And the government turned around and went, whoa, hey, look, if you're not going to use that money for what we told you to use it for, you're going to have to give it back. 
And the banks all just kind of turned their pockets out and went, well, what money? We don't have any money. We didn't, we didn't touch that money. We didn't take any. You know, where does it say anywhere that we took any money? And all of a sudden the government realizes they never kept track of who took what. They had no way of tracking where that money went. $700 million, gone. Just vanished. So, as the, you've seen in the past, like, two years, with stimulus checks, the money, instead of going to the banks, or going to the, these, the corporations, which did the same thing, the, the corporate America did the exact same thing. They took that money, and they just gobbled it up, and they really didn't do much to help the people. So, when coronavirus hit, and there was a shutdown, and all that happened, and the stimulus checks went out, it went to the people this time which I think was a much better idea than sending it to the corporations, to banks. Let the people decide what businesses survive. Don't let the businesses decide what businesses survive. They're going to all think they should survive. And they're just going to fight each other. And we're the ones that are going to pay the price for it. So you got the this corporate bailout. You've got the banks got bailed out. They took that money. They ran. So when the auto industry was like, um, hey, we got a big problem here. Um, we can't sell any cars. Uh, and <laughs> we're going to go out of business. And the government was like, <laughs> look, twice bitten here. We're, we're not really looking to do this a third time. So the auto industry kind of turned. And I, th- I think the thought process was, Hey, you know who we've kept rich for um, the better part of a century? The oil industry. So maybe the oil industry can kick in a few bucks and help us out. Because, you know, we use, you know, our, we don't really care that much about fuel efficiency. So, you know, we're burning more fuel and all the cars need oil for for lube and all the lubricants that go into it. All these fluids that go into it, all petroleum-based. The the components that the cars are made out of, the paint, the plastics, the hoses, the belts, all based, petroleum-based, right? The oil industry is just getting money hand over fist. And the auto industry is like, hey, you know, can you can you help us out so we can keep making you money? And oil industry was like, eh, no, we're not going to do anything. And it basically turned it back on the American auto industry. And this is when you saw things like Ford sold off. Uh, I think they got out of their partnership with Mazda at that point. They sold Jaguar. And they shut down the Mercury brand. GM got rid of Saturn. They got rid of Pontiac. They downsized a bunch of their, their vehicle uh, lines. Chrysler, which I forget, they're, they're like Stellantis now. They've, they've completely changed their name. But at the time, they I think that's when they they broke away from, I think they got bought by... Daimler Chrysler, is that when they went to Daimler? Or did Daimler ditch them at that point and they went with Fiat? But uh, they lost the Plymouth name. They split the trucks out of Dodge and made them their own brand. The Ram is now, you know, was was just the truck name back then, before 2008. It was the Dodge Ram. Now Ram is the truck name. It's its own brand. So they completely restructured all this stuff. People lost jobs. Manufacturing plants shut down. It was it was horrible. And there was no assistance from the oil industry. And I think the oil industry the oil industry at that point was like, okay, clock's ticking. We we just we that was greed, plain and simple. And now the auto industry is going to um, abandon everything we've been trying to do because we didn't want to help them and as they should. And 2006 GM shut down the EV program. 2008, the recession happened. 2010 GM comes out with the Chevy Volt, which was uh, the, I think it was their first plug-in hybrid. And basically it had an internal combustion engine, but it didn't, it wasn't a drivetrain engine. It wasn't like what you'd expect it to be. So it had an electric motor. You would plug it in. You'd get a limited range out of it. I think the first generation was something like 35 miles of pure electric. Second generation was something like 55 miles of pure electric. 
But then there was this little internal combustion engine in it that would kick on, and it just acted as a generator to power that electric engine, and it gave you like almost 400 or somewhere around 400 miles, uh, a little less in the first generation, a little more in the, in the second gen. But it gave you about 400-mile range, and it was pretty good. And since then, you've got companies like Tesla, and now Chevy's uh, got a couple different electric vehicles. you got Ford with a couple different electric vehicles. You've got um, – they're talking about making a, an electric Jeep. Like they're all looking to do an electric now. Volkswagen wants to go pure electric. There is – let's see if I can find the list here. So there's a list of electric vehicles that are available as of 2021. So there's 23 different models here. Some of them are um, just variants of the same model. So there's two Audi e-trons. There's the BMW i3, two Chevy Bolts, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, uh, Hyundai Ioniq, a Hyundai Kona, Jaguar I-Pace, a car called the Candy K27. That's a pretty small vehicle. It's got a really small short range too, like 60 miles. Uh, the Lucid Air, the Kia Nero, Mini Cooper SE hardtop two-door, Nissan Leaf, the Polestar 2, Porsche Taycan, Rivian RIT, uh, the Tesla Model 3, Model S, X, and Y. You got the Volvo XC40 and the Volkswagen ID4. Those are all electric vehicles that are on the market in 2021. And there's more in the way. You got like the... Uh, Tesla's got like the Cybertruck and they got another car that they're talking about releasing. You've got more from Volkswagen that's going to go electric. You've got to talk about the, the electric uh, Jeep Wrangler. They're talking about the Ford F-150 Lightning, another electric pickup. It's expanding. And I think all this has to do with the fact that in 2006, the oil, oil industry kind of you know, nestled up the car industry and it's like, you don't want electric vehicles. We don't want electric vehicles. Make them go away. And the auto industry was like, okay, we'll make them go away. And then you honest, two years later, auto industry needed some help. And the oil industry was like, nope, we're not going to do it. And now the auto industry is like, F you, here comes electric vehicles. You're not going to help us. We're not going to help you anymore. I think that's what you're starting to see here. It Yeah, it has to do with you know, they're better for the environment and they're, you know, they're less pollution. I guess that depends on you. And you can look at it either way. Yeah, the electricity still has to be made. And how's the electricity being made? And how's that polluting the atmosphere and, and all that? Here, here's the point. If you can get your power generation plants and you've got, let's say, a few hundred of them across the country, your, your major ones, it's easier to control a few hundred power plants and get their emissions lower than it is to control the emissions of millions of vehicles. <laughs> I'm just saying it's a lot easier. So I think that's where the, the goal will be next is to get that, the power generation cleaner. And we've got things like solar power, wind power, and you know, whatever you got to say about those, you know, good or bad, it's wind power still got to be better than nuclear power, right? It's got to be better than burning coal. It's got to be better than burning methane. It's got to be better than any of that. There's now an, a new electric car conspiracy that people are, are talking about. And this is this Volkswagen XL1. And this thing is crazy. The XL1 is a two-person limited production diesel-powered plug-in hybrid. So it's not a pure electric car. It's a diesel-powered plug-in hybrid. And it can get 240 miles per gallon. <laughs> this thing is crazy. 200. This isn't like, this isn't um, like, like nutty, like this guy's making this. And this is Volkswagen. They make this car. It's not available in the U.S. So people think it's being, you know, oh, they don't want to sell it in the U.S. I'm not sure why it's not available in the U.S. I, I don't really know. It's just not available in the U.S. And they're only making limited run of 200 units. So you're going to make 200 of them at $150,000. That's why they're not selling them in the U.S. They'll, they won't. Yeah, somebody's going to buy them. But unless they can get that technology a lot cheaper, they're not going to sell that. Let's see alternate fuel conspiracy. Like anything, 
you 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 have your outliers. You got those fuel pills. You got you know you know did they make a a carburetor that can get two hundred miles to the gallon or a water powered car and get a hundred miles to the gallon? Did those actually exist? I'm sure they did. Were they what they say they were? Maybe not. Those fuel pills, they're they're garbage. Who knows if the original idea of it was actually something, and that's just a, a red herring, you know, that's been thrown out there. Hydrogen fuel cell, that's a that's a red flag right there. That's that's just backed by the oil industry. That's why they want those out, and they're not going to be out for a long time. And I, I don't think they do real well in cold weather either. So that's that's another problem because of the way the process has to work. But you've got your you know, there's there is something to this with the electric vehicles. I just think if you look at that information, and you see how it it tried to get started in two thousand in, in uh, nineteen ninety six, and then it just got shut down in two thousand four two thousand five. By two thousand six, it's gone, and then two years later, we get that recession with no help from to the auto industry, from the oil industry, and now suddenly oil you know, electric cars are boom, they are taken off. I, I don't think that's coincidence. I think who killed the electric car or who tried to kill the electric car? The oil industry. Who unwittingly resurrected the electric car? The oil industry. They did it to themselves. Hope you guys enjoy this one. There's probably a lot of um, a lot of car conspiracies I missed. There's a lot of them out there. If there's another one that you that you, you know of, let me know. But that's going to do it for this one. Hope this one makes you think more. Definitely the team sports mentality in this one is the oil companies are just out for themselves. They are their own team. Don't buy into it. Enjoy the rest of your week. I will talk to you in the next episode.